Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We have called this series in uh, Ephesians, New Life, New Community. And uh, if, if you've been here uh, only for the first part of Ephesians and maybe aren't as familiar with the latter part, you may be wondering, okay, well, where's this new community come in? I'm getting the new life. This, you know, seeing from God's perspective his... Uh, in, incredible, amazing work and what he has done. Well, this passage that is before us today is, is really the beginning of a, a transition where we are going to see what that community, that new community that was going to be radically different than the community that they were used to the community that they were in, it's going to be radically different from that. Now, don't worry. We're not going to leave theology totally behind. Uh, we've had some, some major heavy theology in this uh, first part of the book. But here he will uh, begin to intersperse the theological concepts with what that means uh, for this new community, what it's to look like. Now, the passage that I'm going to read today, it's a very brief passage, but it, it begins with uh, that, that transitional, that connecting word, therefore. And so, just to remind you of the immediate context in chapter 2, and that is, he had begun chapter 2 by saying, you you Ephesians, you were spiritually dead. And then from angle after angle, he showed them what that meant. It put them in a hopeless estate. And then last week, we saw out of necessity, because you were spiritually dead, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God. Not by works, lest no one should boast. So he, he brought all of that together there. And then in verse 10, he included himself and said this, For we, by way of application, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the, the question being begged there is, what's that mean? So what's, what's that going to look like? Um, just one more thing that I want you to look for in these few verses as, as I read it in a minute is this. He tells them, there's some things I want you to remember. Now, the Scripture sometimes says there are things we are to forget. But here he's telling us, 
I want you to remember. Now, I don't want to distract you from the passage, but the human mind is such an amazing thing that if, if I were to ask you to think back to when you were a child and think about names that you were called. I have no doubt that you could remember them. I mean, I'm thinking for myself, you know, things like um, Pretty Boy and Brainy and Speedy, you know. That was not supposed to get that big of a laugh. (laughs) Well, the reality is those didn't come to my mind that I was called, but I can tell you names that I was called, which I won't say out loud to give you any more ammunition. (laughs) But, you know, not only can I remember uh, those names, but... If I think, and I, I, I went through this exercise, I, as I think about them, I can feel some of the feelings I felt when, when I was called those names. Now, that's the downside of remembering. There's also an amazingly wonderful side of remembering. I can be driving along and hear music, and you don't have to say it, yes, on the oldie station, um, of of when Connie and I first started dating and it brings back a flood of memories, great memories, wonderful memories about that as well. That's the amazing thing about the the human mind. Paul says here, there's two things I want you to remember. Let's give our attention to God's word in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we would simply ask you to speak into our hearts and into our lives today. There's so many things that could distract us. But will you give us Jesus? That's our need. 
whatever's going on in our lives, Lord, that is our greatest need. Whether we know it or not, that is our need. And so we ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So he begins by telling them, therefore, because of all those things, remember. And literally, it, is, it means continue to remember. You know, don't forget. That's the other way of saying that. So after 33, 33 verses, we have our first imperative. Our first command, an imperative is a command, an indicative talks about who you are. In the Christian life, it is essential that we not get those two mixed up. Which comes first? In other words, it's not about do this and this and this and then you can be a child of God. But it's about what, as the, the first 33 verses basically said, this is what God has done. You are a child of the living God. Therefore, and then it gives a command what we are to do. And he says, remember. But look at what he says, remember, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Now you might say, what in the world? How is that an insult? I don't get it. Why does he throw, you know, why does he throw that in there? You know, what's, what's the point of this? Well, let me, before I try to explain what, why somebody would be called that, let me start out by explaining in that day, that would be like calling somebody a dog. Sometimes they'd call them uncircumcised dogs. But you might, you know, in our day, you might even say, well, you mean like Fluffy, my pet dog, you know? No. And to call somebody a dog in that day, they were thinking of the, the manger, uh, mangy, uh, beastly, filthy, dangerous scavenger that's running around. It was the worst thing you could call somebody. This is in that category. So how does uncircumcision, you know, being called that, fall into that category? Circumcision was the cutting away of the male foreskin. It was a bloody act. It signified cleansing by way of removal. 
Don't forget the part about the bloody act because that will come back in a few moments. So what the, uh, it was a sign that was given to God's people that distinguished them from, from all the other countries around. And it was a sign that caused them to think that in some way, now this was a wrongful thought, but we are better than those people over there. Like any outward act, there is the danger of thinking that that accomplishes you something. And for the Jew, that was one of the things that they tended to think. That somehow this puts us in in good, in better stead with God. And so to call somebody the uncircumcision was to say, you're on the outs with God. You did not receive this sign from him that is reserved for his people. That's why. That's why that was an insult, or at least meant to be an insult to those people. Now, he went ahead, and by the way, that's a classic case of mixing up the imperative with the indicative. They were saying, we, we obeyed God by doing this, so that made us in a favorable place with God. They had it wrong. God said, you're my people. Here's a sign of that. So we have the circumcision and the uncircumcision, but what he does is he uses a phrase here that would upset the Jews as well. He says, you, were called, you Gentiles were called the uncircumcision Look at this phrase in verse 11. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now that same phrase, where we usually see that kind of a phrase, is talking about uh, pagan idol worshipers, you know, who make these gods with their hands. That's the same kind of a phrase. So what he's saying is, the ones that that called you that, they didn't have the kind of circumcision that really mattered, and that's the circumcision of the heart. But instead, all they had was the outward sign. So that would have upset those with the Jewish background that had somehow used that against the Gentiles. Now, back to the Gentiles and, and who they were. Remember, he's saying, I want you to remember this. Verse 12, you were separate from God. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now, what we have done in the, in the book of Ephesians is tried to to say, okay, it was written specifically to the Ephesians, and they were in a difficult situation. Uh, They were in a minority and so on. Why is he saying this and so on? But we're also saying, okay, well, what's that mean to us as well? Why 
you know, why, why is this important? Well, let, let me say this, especially this idea of being separated from God. Some of you, when you hear that, you think of your own testimony and you say, oh yeah, I do remember. I was so far from God. And that's a part of your testimony, either what your actions were or how little you knew of God himself. But then there's some of you who have legitimate testimonies of faith in Christ, but you have a different temptation when you hear something like this. Because you were a good person even before you became a Christian. Or you were very, very young. And so you, you don't think in terms of how separated you were from God. That's where you need to go back to the early part of this chapter. Because you know what? Even if you were a good person, even if you were a very young person that had not had time to do a lot of stuff in your life, you were dead. You were, remember last week, you were at the bottom of the ocean. Your lungs were filled with water. And God had to come and get you and pull you out and fix you, give you new life. So don't ever, don't ever forget, even you who were good moral people, Sometimes it's the good moral people that were farther from God than the ones who knew that they were going a wrong direction. Now, when he talks to uh, the folks in Ephesus about being uh, separated from Christ, he's talking to Gentile Christians. Uh, before they came to Christ, in all likelihood, they worshipped uh, the goddess Diana. They didn't know God and uh, he's, he's about to make a major application of what all this means, which we're going to deal with next week. But we've got we've to grasp this before we get to the application. Uh, but he's going to uh, uh, give us a radical change in their community because of who they are. Uh, the other thing he says about in verse 12, uh, is, uh, and, and for the purpose of the outline, I say non-privileged. Tried to think of something that kind of capsulized. Uh, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Basically, he was saying to them, uh, you didn't have citizenship. And you didn't have any ordinary access to uh, the covenant promises of God. God didn't make covenants with other nations, only with Israel. And so he's saying, Gentiles, I, I want you to remember that. That's, that's where you were. And this is still true of unbelievers today. They're outside the kingdom. So they don't have access to all of the glorious promises that those who are in the kingdom have. Remember what it, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 3 it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. 
not only is the unbeliever not entitled to every spiritual blessing, they're not entitled to any spiritual blessing. And we've got to, we've got to understand that. There are those that are outside of the kingdom without citizenship. Dallas Willard said, we will not doubt that that kingdom has existed from the moment of creation. will never end. It cannot be shaken. It is totally good. It, ha- it has never been in trouble and never will be. It is not something that human beings produce or ultimately can hinder. If you have been overseas, you realize how precious your citizenship is. You know, when they, they say, hang on to your passport. Now, why is that? Well, the, the passport represents, it is not your citizenship, but it represents it. And there are all kinds of people that would love to get a hold of your passport in order to get some of the benefits of being a citizen of the United States. Some of the benefits that you are entitled to, and they are not. Paul is saying to these Gentiles, don't forget, you used to be a non-citizen. You were an alien. And then, as if all those things were not enough, he goes one step further, and he says, you are hopeless. Again, verse 12, having no hope without God in the world. Some historians indicate that that there was like a veil of hopelessness over the ancient world. Uh, There, you know, there was no shortage of philosophies or religions or gods or, uh, you know, any of those learning, all those kinds of things, but that that there was a, a darkness over the world at that time. But as I read that, I thought, you know, sounds a lot like our world, doesn't it? There's no shortage of, 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 of people saying this way, that way. My religion. And what, what's the desire? It's for some kind of hope. When he says, you were without God You were God-forsaken. And he's reminding these who are in Christ Jesus now that there was a hopelessness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Apart from Christ, the deeper a man thinks, the more pessimistic he becomes. I think that makes so much sense. The deeper one thinks, if they don't have Christ, the deeper they think, the more pessimistic they're going to become. As a, as a pastor, I've been around a lot of people that have been on both sides of the funeral. And by both sides of the funeral, I mean either they were facing their own funeral or they were facing a loss. And I haven't done a scientific study But over the last 34 years, in comparing 
those facing that, those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ, facing virtually the exact same thing, I would just simply say, there is no comparison. Now, I'm not going to tell you that every Christian equally faces their own death or the death of one that they love with equal amount of grace. I I won't tell you that. We're all at different levels. So, uh, of course, that's not true. But I will tell you that virtually no unbeliever does. There is a hopelessness with the unbeliever that is so heartbreaking. And that hopelessness comes out either as an anger that can't be quenched or an acceptance that is so empty that there is no comfort there. You know, they're just given in and given up. But all of that could be described as this hopelessness. That's what it is to be without God. And Paul is saying, I, I don't want you to forget that. That's where you were. Now, that wasn't to depress them. <laughs> it does sound depressing, doesn't it? But that wasn't the point. It's, that's not where you are now. Now, look at, look at what he, he goes on to talk to them about understanding their present identity. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now. What's that sound like? Remember a couple weeks ago? But God. And it is. It's parallel. He says, this, is, this was your plight, but God, he's basically saying, changed everything. And now he says, that's who you were, but now everything's different for you. Now what? There is reconciliation. The idea of being, being far off is expanded in the next verses. We're gonna, again, we're going to look at that next week. But you know what? Even in their temple, they were far off. That was deliberate. Now, what changed that? Verse 13. But now, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, it's our union with Christ. You see, there's, there's, there's the theology. Paul doesn't ever get away from that. So, we share in everything. All of the benefits that Christ is entitled to as the perfect God-man, everything, that which he is the heir to, belong to us. He's saying, you who are far off, Now you're in Christ. Every advantage Christ has 
belongs to the believer. Now look at the term he uses. Instead of being alienated, kicked out, kept out in Christ, they are, verse 13, brought near. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. And then he says, how? By the blood of Christ. You know what he doesn't say? By the blood of circumcision. That's what was fulfilled in Christ. That's why we, we don't uh, circumcise ceremonially or as a sign of the covenant. We baptize. It is bloodless because of the blood that Christ shed. Next week we're going to have a a covenant baptism here. And that's what we celebrate. There will be no blood shed because it's not necessary. When you read, uh, anytime Paul uses that phrase, brought near by the blood of Christ, read substitutionary death. Jesus as our substitute shed his blood so that we don't have to. That's the gospel. For now, I want us to apply this for a few minutes. But not just for the Gentiles, but for us. We need to remember who we were. If you do that, there's several things that are going to take place. If you remember who you were, it will give you renewed hope for the lost. You get it? You remember how far off you were? John Newton, and we know John Newton as the the pastor who wrote the words for Amazing Grace. He was a converted slave trader who then, after his conversion, became a godly pastor. He went from an utterly wretched life to a life of devotion. He was asked once whether he ever despaired over the salvation of some persons. This was Newton's reply. I never did despair since God saved me. See? So, you, you don't need to give up on other people. I mean, that's easy to do. It, it's, it's easy. Oh, we had such a vivid picture of the conversion of, of uh, Saul here Friday night to Paul. And you saw the transformation. And it was just such a great reminder. You know what? Paul never had any problem not giving up on other people (laughs) because he knew. He knew the depths of his sin, how far he was from God and what it took for God to capture him into his kingdom. So he didn't have any trouble giving up. So as you remember how far off you were. 
then those that you love or those that you care about or uh, the lost that are around you that you, you say, I just don't see them coming to Christ. I can't imagine it. Don't give up. Don't despair. Remembering who you were will help you not to give up. And then secondly, live a life of gratitude. Uh, a former president of Princeton back when it was a Christian institution was asked about obedience and he said this, as a young man I accepted Christ and the gift of eternal life. All the rest of my life was simply a P.S. to that day saying thank you Lord for what you gave to me. So he's saying any, any obedience that I do now is not to earn something but it's because of what Christ did in my life. It's saying thank you. And then thirdly, it will, uh, if you remember who you were, it will usher you to worship. It will draw you to worship. It will drive you to worship. Because remembering that you were without privilege, without hope. And the right response is worship of him. And so, even more though than remembering who you were, I want you to remember who you are now. And maybe even ask the question, am I acting more like my former identity or my real identity? What will it mean to you if you, if you, if you live within your identity as a child of the living God? Well, first of all, it will humble you. Because like this whole first part of the book, you will say, I don't deserve this. I couldn't have possibly earned any of this. And then secondly, it, it will increase your love and acceptance of others. It should. And again, we're going to visit that next week as an application in the new community. But further, it will give you incentive to live according to your identity. You know what? If you're, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, your identity is not, I am a sinner. Now, you sin, but that's no longer your identity. See, the problem with going around saying, well, I'm just a sinner, then you can justify. Well, if I'm a sinner, sinner sin. So you can justify doing what sinners do. But instead, your identity is this. I am a, a child of the living God. I have union with Christ. And I don't have to sin any longer. That's not my identity. And when I sin, I am a, going against who I am in Christ. And then ultimately, this too will lead you to worship. Remembering who we were and remembering who we are 
will lead us into glorious worship, saying, what else can I do, Lord, but worship you? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. We so need Jesus, and you have so offered him. Will you cause perspective in our life, Lord? And will you enable us to respond with humility, acceptance of others? Respond according to our identity and, and with glorious worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.